rebrand, rename our podcast um, from the accused to something different. Something um, better. Something better. We'd love to hear y'all's feedback. And less copyrighted. Yeah, less copyrighted. <laughs> we figured as attorneys probably shouldn't uh, steal someone else's name. So shout out to the other accused podcast. Um, well, technically they were accused. Just, just accused. And we are the accused. Mm-hmm. check out the feed room, the kennels, 
stand right there in the shoes of the shooter. Right. So or shooters. So very interesting. I think it's a it's a good look for Judge Newman. You know, I if I were a juror on any big case, I'd want to see the crime scene. So that's what we we started with today. Um, Luke, you want to talk a little bit about the pathologist that the defense put up? Yeah, um, it's pretty interesting coming from Georgia. Has a very much a law enforcement background, highly credentialed, ended up being kind of the statewide, um, you know, not just an independent county pathologist, but kind of a policymaker. So very credentialed, it was good they brought in someone like that, but he, I thought he testified well, and they started to bring him to show um, how Dr. Reamer perhaps got this wrong. And, and there, there were things to me, even last week, I think we had a WLTX appearance, um, where I, just from a common sense standpoint, some of the things she was saying didn't really pass the full smell test. I mean, you're talking about Maggie's shots, and one of the things that he, he brought out, he basically agreed with most of those. Um, so he's not just totally Monday morning quarterbacking her. And he, he certainly agrees with the shot and the angle that comes down and severs her spinal cord and, and with a high velocity rifle basically causes such a rupturing effect to her brain that that's a fatal wound. But Dr. Reamer described her chest wound as one that was coming up her breast, at skimming it, re-exiting her chest, and then coming up through her neck. So you found that to be... Um, I, I never found that to be plausible because she even opined the mechanics of it, where she thought that abdominal shot and the thigh shots, which of course have stiffly, so you know that that shooter is less than, was it within a three, three feet range, would have caused Maggie to double over in pain, then allowing about the approximate angle for a bullet to come in the back of her head. But she just failed to explain at all, well, how does that get you a graze wound coming from the opposite direction? And I, I brought that up when we talked about it on WLTX. But what Dr. Um, Eisen, what's his name, Eisen? Eisenstadt. Dr. Eisenstadt. He was a well-qualified pathologist, worked at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. He basically said, well, no, I mean, I, I'm looking, I can get directionality by looking at the path. And he talked about the bullet pushing and then creating skin tags, almost like a wake if you're thinking about a boat traveling in a direction, this pattern of movement. And he showed that on Maggie, that the skin tags were going down you know, showing a directional travel. So he opined that your that, that second shot, she would have gotten in the same general trajectory as the, the fatal one to the back of the base of the spine, but it would have come down through her chin and down her breast and exiting that way. Um, so he, you know, does that affect how she died? No, um, but it laid the groundwork for saying, okay, well, she can make mistakes, she's fallible. And then they... Yeah, Luke, you were, I remember, we were kind of cutting in between with some work, but you were like, so they're, they're covering Maggie first. And I was like, yeah, and they're laying the groundwork for a mistake because, you know, it was going to be a the next line of question that was most important. Luke, before we get to yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul's crime scene and kind of his, his shots, you know, the other thing I thought that was important 
um, that you know pathologist Eisenstadt said was that all of Maggie's entry wounds would have been facing her attacker. Um, so she, you know, let's say something catches her attention, like her son being shot. She's facing her attacker, or you know, she's not necessarily running from her attacker. She's facing the attacker. That was interesting to me. The other thing I thought that was interesting when describing the shots to her head and then her breasts, both coming from the same direction, that was really important to me because, like you said, from the last time we discussed this last week, to believe Dr. Reamer, Maggie is taking a shot going up her chest and then going down from her head, and those are almost wildly inconsistent. Very inconsistent. I mean, it's, it is a odd kind of either Matrix-style shots being fired or you've got multiple people circling Maggie, which it, it just also this pathologist really seemed to kind of lay that to rest. I also found, you know, in pathology work, it's all about the details. And, you know, he was even able to render an opinion that her left earring was actually, you know, ripped off by the shot that kind of came came down. And I can't remember if it was the headshot or the one through her breast, but it was from that consistent, she had some bruising on her face that kind of would have, it was just very consistent. So that was pretty interesting. But like, like we said, he kind of laid the scene kind of to attack her credibility in front of the jury for the more important part. And I'll let you finish talking about that. Well, that's right. Um, of course, we think about the position of her body in context with some of the other experts, particularly the defense expert, Sutton, that talked about kind of the trajectory and the height of the person or persons that would have been doing that shooting. Of course, a lot of people have floated a concept of maybe if these if the shooters were sitting on a golf cart, like Mr. Murdoch might have been, maybe with the gun resting kind of across his lap, maybe that would give you the right trajectory. So I don't know. But yeah, moving on to Paul, um, we had two experts today. One we'll get to in a second, and we'll give him his, his due course because he was powerful. But Dr. Eisenstadt moved on to Paul, and this is where he really disagrees with the mechanism of injury. Um, he doesn't take a whole lot of issue with the first shot, which he and Dr. Reamer both agree is coming across the chest um, as he's standing generally in that doorway. You know, the pathologists don't really talk about the position of, the, of where he might have been on the crime scene, but they know the position of the body in relation to the shooter. And he's taking this wound across his chest with buckshot that then goes through his arm. And so the doctor, both doctors agree generally on that one. It's the other wound that is so vastly different. And if you recall, Dr. Reamer opined that this would be a shot coming across and up the right shoulder as his head is kind of turned into it and going to the base of the skull, causing a massive blowout. I'm sorry, left shoulder. <laughs> and, and what would that have done to the shooter per expert Kinsley? Remember how he was basing his information on, on Dr. Reamer's? Well, Kinsley, right. Kinsley describes for that kind of angle. Well, for that angle, any kind of normal size shotgun at that severe angle coming up, if that's what you want to believe, is, I mean, if you're talking about a semi-automatic normal hunting shotgun, not like a sawed-off shotgun, the, the base of the butt of the gun is almost on the floor, and you're kind of trying to shoot Paul, if you're the attacker, at an impossible angle, you know, with your arm reaching the trigger, 
So that was kind of a struggle, but he, Kinsley was really, he was a great witness, um, seemed to be following her data. And the other thing that always stood out was that there's, because there's no stippling on his shoulder, Paul's shoulder for that wound, you know that it's at least three feet or more away. So it requires you to really play that game of pulling the shotgun really low. And it just, it didn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, I, I kind of vividly recall on that line of questioning, he just couldn't explain that. He's just like, yeah, I just don't really know. There's a lot of variables, but it would happen extremely low and then close enough to cause that kind of damage, but yet with no stippling. Right, but he's also generally going to look at the, the top of the door and the ceiling. I mean, there's biological material, there's blood, there's brain, there's hair. So clearly he was shot from below and it went up. So that um, seemed to be quite questioned today. So what the pathologist said, and you can kind of see what Dick Arpulian was trying to do when he cross-examined Dr. Rima, and he didn't do a great job, I'll just say that. It was a little hard to follow at some points, but he did bring out excerpts from this pathology book that, that she agreed was basically the Bible on gunshot wounds to bodies, and particularly a chapter about when you have a shotgun in terms of a contact wound to the head. And so when we say contact wound, we're talking about the barrel of a gun pressed to a surface. It creates a distinct searing, burning on the wound. And when you're touching, if I'm touching Brian's head with a gun, all the gases from that gun are going to go into the head. And the head is an enclosed body. Whereas if you're shooting from a distance, which she asserted the shotgun um, going kind of wincing across his shoulder into the head. You're not you're at intermediate range or more. She just described just a lot of energy that kind of really destroyed his brain. <clears throat> but, you know, the only, you know, I wasn't a big fan of Harpootlian's kind of meandering cross with her. I think at the time I was saying, you know, when you're cross-examining the smartest person in the room and typically pathologists are extremely well-trained and highly intelligent, you don't really, sometimes you have to be careful with your style because, you know, you might get, you know, jump into a bear trap. And so, but I, I do remember Dick Carpoulian was saying, well, listen, she talked about energy and gas exchange causing the damage. And he, that was the only aspect of his cross that I think he scored a point on. He said, stop, what'd you say again? She goes, you know, the, the gas and the energy can cause this kind of damage. And so he, clearly want to make a point of reference for the jury for then however many witnesses later we are now that he can say aha I'm trying to bring it together here's this expert we have here today but back to the doctor today I mean what he testified to consistent with this treatise this bible of gunshot wounds is that if you have a, a high energy weapon like a shotgun and it is different he did distinguish versus just like a a small caliber pistol or something but if you have a shotgun or a rifle in this case a shotgun with a contact wound to the head it will produce such tremendous force within an enclosed area that it will that force is looking for a route to escape it's just basic physics and that energy yes it will eventually have a hole out the other side to have some escaping but it wants to escape prior to that and so he described all that force then redirecting up which caused the top of his head to literally explode with his brain falling out. But he would he described an upward explosion in, in which the later, which we'll discuss the crime scene expert, 
would cause that injury, but it would be way more consistent with the wound to his shoulder, because then you have, again, looking at the directionality of that shoulder wound on Paul as it comes down, you know, you've got, again, those very distinctive skin tags that are almost creating like wakes of a motorboat traveling through the water. It's pushing in a direction into the skin, and he could see pellets in that wound even as down as he said the first rib. So it's really coming down and a force coming this way, lodging into the, a pellet in the first rib, whereas if you had a force coming up, you're not gonna have that same lodging down in the first rib. So to, hear, to him, it was very clear that the directionality was contact wound, and then what was left was, was force out across his shoulder, but most of the force actually generated energy back up and that will be a hugely significant point for defense, which we'll talk about in a second as we digest <coughs> the other expert, but Brian? Yeah, just last follow-up thought, uh, thoughts on Eisenstadt was basically, you know, he, he had, his opinion as well was that the headshot, which he was giving an opinion was close contact, you know, in the barrel on head, um, Paul would have been bent over um, from the first shot to the chest and then someone pressed this shotgun to his head. Um, he, he gave a little bit of kind of, I, I guess, you know, close proximity to the floor even. He was talking about, you know, exactly how that could have occurred. If you're double, you know, he kind of gave an opinion that Maggie would have been doubled over in pain after her couple shots. And that's where you get the two on the back of the head and then the, the breast. And then similarly with Paul, it seems like he was bent over in pain as well when the final shot occurs. Right, and we'll get kind of further analysis on that from the crime scene expert too, but interestingly enough, so Brian and I, when we did our double murder in December in front of Judge Newman, we also had a contact wound in that case. It was one of the many wounds. And so we observed how the pathologist will shave that part of the head to really look. And I graphically and vividly remember that victim in that case see the literal burn mark around the wound. Um, now that was a small-ish caliber handgun, so it didn't have the same force and gas velocity as a shotgun. So it did not do to the head what occurred to Paul. But it was a significant injury, even with a small right. caliber handgun. And in that case, the pathologist shaved. So you could see it. In this case, um, which Dr. Eisenstadt brought out, I mean, looks like Dr. Reamer kind of quickly made her opinion about directionality and she didn't feel the need to shave the top of the head to investigate if you had seen any of that trademark burning and searing consistent with a, a contact wound because she thought that was the exit. So she didn't shave that to see and Dr. Eisenstadt was like, well, yeah, she had she shaved it, she probably could have seen. And so they were basically doing a good job through a credible witness of certainly as to Paul's fatal wound, saying that, that it came from the exact opposite way, it, it, it will end up explaining the crime scene, but also, more critically, as we get to the next witness, it would leave the attacker just 100% drenched, covered in blood, brain matter, biological material, even with some other stuff we'll talk about in a second. So that's a significant piece of evidence for the defense. Any other thoughts before we move? Well, totally disoriented. I might have been learning about our stuff. And totally disoriented, too, and not able to then 
quickly perhaps get up, turn around, and execute, you know, what happened with Maggie, which leads us to believe that there is most likely two shooters. Right, that's what we learn about from the, the next witness for sure. Um, well, let's dive into the next witness. Okay. So this was, you know, this was a serious witness that the defense put on. This was Tim Paulbach, um, and he came from the hallowed uh, crime scene school. Is a is like Henry Lee? Or yeah, I mean, he's, so he's, I think he was executive director recently. Right, and now he's kind of no longer executive director. He does consultation work, but he was a- uh, Another dinky. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. He's from Connecticut, yeah. from Massachusetts. Connecticut, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people might wonder how that plays in front of a small town, rural, southern jury. I mean, in a perfect world, we're chock full of fabulous experts and aren't in the South that aren't already tied up in law enforcement, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the best of the best is in a different state, and, but I thought his expertise really shone through. I don't think anybody would hold against him once you got to hear him, that he's from Connecticut. Now, the other expert on general crime scene um, that they brought in a couple of days ago, um, not as good. Not as good, and, as, and so if you're not as good and you're not as strong in your testimony or your facts, then the jury might go, well, why should I listen to this carpetbagger Yankee for the defense? How much money do you get paid again? But when you're really good, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters where you're from. <clears throat> so this guy was really good in our opinion, <clears throat> Tim Paulbach. Um, and he had a little bit, you know, most of these consultants and experts, you know, of course there's always the stick to beat any defense witness over the head with, well, how much do you get paid? Well, no one does work for free. So we, you know, we as practicing criminal defense lawyers are always kind of yawn at that kind of line of questioning because no one's doing pro bono work on these types of cases. Um, no medical doctors gonna fly in from anywhere and, and render an opinion without being paid for it. Um, but he was a little bit unique because one thing that often is effective in our experience when you get a crime scene expert coming in to kind of uh, Monday morning quarterback what SLED has done or what, whatever someone else has done is the state always gets to go, aha, but you didn't go to the scene. You didn't go to the scene that day. Uh, and some of these uh, prosecutors and investigators in their office and agents, they've all been to the scene. So everyone, so what you're telling me is when everyone else here has been to the scene, but you have not, and you're rendering an opinion, you don't even care enough to go to the scene. So, <laughs> you know, experts are allowed to rely on the rules on other experts and other data. So that, so if you got your thinking hat on, and if the defense does a good job of kind of bringing that out, it's never an issue. But well, it's also really helpful in this case that the owner still has control and custody of this property. So, our, sorry, Brian. <laughs> Our, our double murder in December occurred in low-income housing project, essentially. So our guy, after he got arrested, had no control of that property. I mean, it, it, it wasn't repaired in a very good way. We went out to the scene years later, but our expert who wasn't hired that day, you know, had no, no way to really go there in real time and nudge, you know, cops. He hadn't been hired, can't nudge cops out of the way and say, let me look here too, just in case I get hired down the road, so. Yeah, so it's not always possible. <clears throat> but 
And I don't think the defense had any anticipation that this expert, Tim Paul Botch, was going to ever be able to go out to the scene. He was going to be a normal expert witness that relies on other data, other reports. But because this trial has consistently been moving much slower than anyone anticipates, he was all queued up Friday, had flown in Thursday, and was not ready to be called by the defense based on their schedule. And so he spent the weekend in Walterboro and he went out to Moselle and was able to go out to the scene and make a couple major, well, he had, I think he had some bombshells to drop already, but he was able to make some more major revelations. Luke, you want to do it? You want me to do it? I'd love to. Well, go ahead. <laughs> well, he went out there and of course he's agreeing with, with the pathologist that we just heard from prior. The bombshells regarding Paul, I mean, and, and number one, this expert is an expert of all experts. He's done everything. He's testified everywhere. He's generally an expert in crime scene reconstruction and injury mechanics. And so, number one, he, he did not take any issue with the initial shot to Paul. He agrees it's very consistent. He puts Paul really angled in the doorway uh, against his shooter, where the, that shooter would have a trench wound across his chest that would go and hit his arm, and then also go through his arm and, and strike the window pane, which is some of the pellets that you will then see, and we've heard about before from the other expert Sutton, and from general crime scene viewing, and that's a wound that did not have much stippling, and he concedes it was probably from about three feet away or more, but also concedes that when you're wearing clothing, you're not gonna really have a lot of stippling go through and it was a black shirt that Paul was wearing. But he, he describes that first shot as a good idea of what you get when you have a shotgun spread. And that was buckshot, um, which we know from what was left in that windowsill. But the really interesting, again, disagreement with the state's evidence is he agrees that the wound to Paul's head was a contact wound, again, coming from the top of his head. And basically he opine based on his training experience again with this enormous amount of force mm -hmm. that he described in great detail you know again when you have that contact wound on a high velocity weapon not just a 22 not even maybe a nine millimeter pistol but a, either a shotgun or a ar style rifle you're gonna it's gonna be looking in a trapped confined area like your skull for an exit and initially that first exit is gonna be right up the barrel and spraying in, in, a, in a way that was very consistent. And what he found when he went out there, we know that there, from hearing to Agent Kinsley, is that there's brain matter, hair, blood all across the top of the door, up on the wall and the ceiling. But there's also a, a ding, a little indention on the top of the door that he said was very consistent with a pellet going up. And he also then found another pellet lodged in the door frame, the wood of the door frame, that wasn't really visible from the, the crime scene photos, but he went out there and took his own measurements, his own photos, it's still there. And now, at first glance, you might think, well, yeah, he got shot from below, it went up, and that's just the way pellets go. And he says, no, that is not the way pellets go, because, again, based on the lack of stippling on the shoulder, you would, it's inconsistent to have a, a shotgun that low um, based on the wound to be able to get that shot. And he you know, described essentially that the key takeaway from this 
is that the shooter, he described the first shot hitting Paul in the chest, causing him to essentially drop. That he would have bled for a little while, that his arms were not up, he did not expect it, and that he showed blood spatter on the ground from the bleeding arm and chest, and then he would have dropped to his, essentially his knees. He said that when Paul took the headshot, the contact wound, that he was two feet or less from the ground. And that even at that low kind of level, you have this explosion up that would still cause a spray of biological material, hair, blood, bone fragments, and also pellets. And we know that because there's a dent on the door from a pellet. There's also a pellet still lodged up there. And because what he opined is because that is coming back into the face of the shooter, that he would have been stunned. They would have been absolutely covered in blood and also probably injured, probably injured, maybe even taking pellets himself due to how close this or was. Herself. Or herself. Or right. herself. Or herself. Um, when we don't know, I mean, just based on this, it's neutral, it's gender neutral, but. That seems very excessive. And I mean, perhaps even passionate, which in some way could possibly align with this whole like boat crash threat theory, perhaps. That's just my well, opinion. Can I say something to that point real quick? You know, Hannah brings up a good point. It seems excessive, passionate, you know, someone with a lot of desire to kill. You know, one thing this expert does say is that based on no defensive wounds, that Paul would have been surprised by the first shot across his chest. He sees no raising of arms. He thinks that would have totally taken Paul by surprise in that feed room. Like someone creeping up on him, um, shooting him within three feet. He also says, based on the two shotgun cartridges, as the expert says, or as we know, just the shotgun shells that are ejected. He says, because of the way they were ejected into the feed room, that whoever did this shooting, um, would have been, you know, in with their at least the front part of the shotgun into the receiver. The receiver would have been in yeah. facing it into the feed room, which I kind of find to be significant. It seems very much like someone was sneaking up on Paul, close proximity, you know, receiver facing into the uh, into the feed room, took Paul by surprise. This uh, expert says that you know after the first shot, Paul would have been his head within two feet of the ground, and then as Hannah says, had this really excessive close contact shot that would have, it would have sent, I mean, obviously it did a lot of damage to Paul, it's the fatal shot. You know, Luke's talked a lot about what this expert said about the gases and how much energy would have, the only place the energy could have gone like that would have been to blow back through the opening that was just created, and that's why you see the pellets, that's why you see, you know, all of the kind of significant damage to the head, you know, Paul's brain fell out, fell up and out. He also talks about, you know, what fascinates me is the, is the probable likelihood of injury to the assailant. Uh, not so you got blood in the eyes. It, you know, Luke and I were talking for, for people that are a fan of, you know, classic movies or even uh, pop culture phenomenon type movies. The movie Pulp Fiction, there's a pretty gruesome scene where John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are 
you know, kind of being picked up and there's, you know, they're going to, they got some guy in the back and a gun just accidentally goes off. The, the, the victim's in the front and they're having a great, good time. Just, just jolly all time. time. Travolta's got his gun out. He's hey man, you're old. <laughs> and so there's a scene where they got to call this cleaner. I think it's Harvey Keitel who comes in as the cleaner. But anyway, um, and there's a scene where they're basically hosing off with a high spray hose Sam L. and John Travolta to get the brain, the bone matter, everything off of their bodies. And you know, that's, I always thought of that as a pretty dramatic kind of illustration of kind of a, you know, a Tarantino kind of movie style thing. But like the way these experts describe this today, that appears to be what we'd be dealing with. And to the extent that the, even the attacker would have had injuries from either bone matter or pellets flying back up. Um, you know, I was talking to Hannah that it's, you know, a lot of kind of old folks who like to clean the yard or whatever back in the day would do burn piles in an aluminum trash can. And you, and you find all these burn injuries because they start the fire in a, in a very tight area and it come back up really quickly out of, the tra- out of the old aluminum trash can. And you have all these elderly folks with burn injuries. And that kind of reminds me of this situation. But whoever, whoever did this. It was emotional, it was close proximity, and it, it would have stunned them and probably injured them. Um, well, I view a contact wound as very clinical, almost professional, um, depending on your viewpoint. I mean, it's, you're not, if you take one surprise shot across the chest and fall goes down, I mean, you're not just gonna shoot him again, maybe in the leg or the abdomen. I mean, it's a kill shot. So, now, someone who's experienced in firearms or a hunter could easily do that, but so could other people. So it, it could be luck or it could be just the next shot that needs to totally end Paul's life. But what we know is whoever that shooter is, is, is perhaps very much stunned and injured, but absolutely covered from head to toe in blood, which we know Murdoch is not. And he has a very small window of time to clean up and get rid of everything. And that expert also described the void. The voiding area. Uh, the voiding area where he really mapped out and showed the jury in a photo. You can see where he was standing. It's almost like a ghost. It's, it creates the blood is going all around him. And so you can kind of get this visual of where his body was to absorb most of that blood. Um, so that was really interesting. A big score for the fence. And then he was just outright asked, well, what do you think? Is it two shooters or one? And he basically described the two shooter theory. And half of that is because how dazed he thinks Paul was shot first, but the unavoidable con- consequence of a contact wound with a shotgun to Paul's head would have left the shooter covered in blood, perhaps dazed, perhaps injured with pellets and bone flying in his face. And if Maggie is hearing this, observing this, you know, if there's only one shooter who's just done that, he may not be in a position to immediately find the blackout 300 and then take care of Maggie. Maggie probably would be running. So this, this expert said, look, you got one shooter one is kind of out of commission for a second. But if there is a shooter two, he would be in a position to then use a separate blackout do, do those crimes, those wrongs, those shots to Maggie quite quickly enough for her to not flee, run for the hills, because again, her, her shots are, are facing. And the other thing that always seemed like 
weirdness to me is it's you're not really going to be able to manipulate two guns, long guns, at one time and do this. Even with a sling, which you described, if you had your AR platform gun slung across over your back, you'd still have to turn around while holding another gun. The other thing is, if you're if you're Alex Murdoch and this is your plan, and you go down there to kill your family, you only take one gun. You take the AR. It's got a 30-round magazine, and just go down there, and it will provide plenty of of ammunition to do that. Day. This is just not Luke Shealy's opinion. This this expert, you know, basically made that point today, saying, you know, you got a high-capacity um, magazine like that. There's no need to take a separate shotgun, um, and even with if you just chose to take the shotgun, you know, there, you've got plenty of, you know, ammunition available to do this, but that just, depending on the shotgun, depending on the shotgun, that's true. Um, but it just, it didn't make, it doesn't really pass the logic test. So, and the state has never really contested the concept of two shooters. They haven't, expl- they haven't firmly convinced that it's only one based on evidence. They say it's only one because he was there based on the, the kennel video very close in time to what they believe is the death, but they can't, they haven't really tried to touch on the mechanics of it, the logic of it. They just want to kind of throw him in there and, you know, he could be a shooter or he certainly could know who the shooters are and maybe he's just not talking about them. We've talked a lot about this Ozark theory. He never really went there with it. He never did. He didn't deep dive into that explanation. He just kind of floated the concept that perhaps there's people that just took the bookcase media spiral and went nuts with it. He's just opining without really anything. I think he would have been a lot more convincing had he said what I think he knows, which is something more than he's telling. Well, he, you know, he and his defense team made a decision, which is what we always said he probably should do to have any shred of credibility with this jury especially since the financial crimes are, were successfully brought into the case by the state. You just got to own up to that. You know, if he's owning up to an Ozark theory, then he's also associating himself with some drug dealings, drug cartel. And he's and so, you know, I think he had enough um, hypothesis about people being angry about the boat accident to really go there. And he might have caught another charge. I and mean, they, they did charge him again Friday with contraband. And I just got to speak out to this. He got charged with contraband by the Walterboro, um, no, I guess it was Coffin County Sheriff's Department, because he was passed a book by his son. And I'll just tell you, in many, many high-profile trials that we've done, or high, you know, you got lots of family and friends in the courtroom, they always sit behind the fence. You always check with courthouse security, who is typically the local sheriff's department in whatever agency jurisdiction you're dealing with. But there's never a problem with bringing Bibles, bringing books, bringing a slice of pizza during lunch so you don't have to eat the local jail food. I mean, we've had him bring all kinds of stuff. Now you run it, you, so that's never ever arisen to a contraband charge. Now, I don't know if the lawyers screwed up and not run that by security or whatever was going on with Buster that day. But this is typically not something, bringing a book to an inmate in court, not something that's going to bring a criminal charge. So, you know, he, he didn't bring him a weapon. It was a book. I understand it was a John Grisham book. 
Um, so we, you know, we get stuff, we get stuff from family all the time, and so we say, sometimes we just look at the the security that are, are situated around the courtroom. We say, hey, and they're like, they just nodded on. So it's never a big deal unless it's this case, and it just, you know, it's just another piece of this that if I were Dick Harpootlian and company, I think it'd be, I mean, you could bring it up to show that, you know, SLED's got an ax to grind, that they did uh, pretty effectively today with the next witness. Do we want to just go there with it? Well, do we, are we done with this other expert? Is there any, I don't, I think we've covered the other expert and what it means for the defense. It's a big, big score for them. Both of those were today. They basically pointed out why both the pathologist and the crime scene analysis were flawed in convincing ways. How it means that if Alec Murdoch is the shooter, he should be absolutely covered in blood, maybe have injuries from pellets. And, you know, really allows them to go with this narrative that it's just impossible for him to get that clean. Um, so that's good for them. If you're the state, I mean, they, you can kind of tell by who they put up to cross-examine these folks, that they really didn't have a lot of tools to push back on. I mean, no offense to Savannah Good or John Conrad. John Conrad, but like they just, they were very short crosses that really, I mean, these, these experts were unassailable. Um, perhaps now on redirect, if, or not redirect, when we're hearing that the state's gonna do a rebuttal. rebuttal case, now maybe they could recall some experts say, well, I disagree because of this, so here's Dr. Reamer. Or maybe you don't want her because she'll be like, all right, well, that kind of makes sense. I can't dispute what he says. But who knows what we're going to hear. I don't know that we're going to hear from those same witnesses again. But it's a big win for them. Do we have questions about any crime scene? Do we want to move on to John Marvin? Yeah, jump in here if you have any questions kind of about the crime scene. I think somebody may have popped in later asking if they did find or check for any additional pellets, which I know that there was one found um, later, if y'all want to kind of circle back to that significance. Well, yeah, there was one that was still found lodged in the door frame that was really discovered by the crime scene expert when he went out Friday. It's consistent with being birdshot of a very certain diameter what was used in the head. So it's not just some random pellet there. Buckshot, of course, was the, the chest wound. And what we know was still lodged in the window was a buckshot pellet, which has been testified to and even discovered by Mr. Ball when he went out there and said, you know, as a friend, as a friend, lawyer, partner, and said, hey, y'all want that? And they were like, no, we're good. So definitely very consistent with that theory of a blowback and again, we know it's not coming from below because of the lack of stippling and because the angle is just too extreme to be, lack of stippling means the gun has to be at least three feet away. So to have the, you have your rifle way down the floor at that angle, it should be just an almost impossible or nonsensical way to fire up at that trajectory. Yeah, but it also lends a lot of credibility to that particular expert for the defense because like I said, it's very, Irregular that a defense crime scene expert ever gets to go to a crime scene, you know, years after uh, an incident. So that he was able to kind of do that, and not only do that, he was able to find evidence in a case that you know what, Sled didn't 
SLED should be identifying every pellet that's embedded anywhere. They should be marking it. Like Luke said, they should, if they find it, they should pull it out and note that, you know, is it birdshot, is it buckshot? Because like Luke said, you know, this expert did that and it was consistent with the same type of shot that was used in Paul's head. So it major credibility boosting for this particular expert, not that he needed it. He was one of the most credible experts that we've seen in this trial. Um, so it was just, and, that was interesting. And he also, even on Maggie, I mean, it wasn't like 100% certain like he would have been with Paul's head wound, but he, he was asked and he gave his opinion that even from the high velocity, particularly shots to Maggie's abdomen and to her thigh, those are three feet or closer because she has gunshot residue, she has stippling there, that you could, with a high velocity rifle, expect to see some spatter. Now it wasn't just an absolute certainty like he said with the head wound, but he's making a case that the shooter or shooters would have had biological material on them. So well, he made the case for two shooters and Paul certainly would have been covered in biological material and probably injured in that Maggie shooter would very likely have blood spatter. Right. So Yeah. <clears throat> um again circling back to like DNA involved with Maggie, I think like some questions about hair found in her hair as well as again the skin underneath her fingernails. Do you think do you see that being brought up again? I think it's certainly brought up in closing. I mean the, the DNA under her nails is something that the defense will harp on. It's just another seed for reasonable doubt that we don't know who it is. They never put it in CODIS, which is a national database that if someone else had a profile in there, it would ping against that. Um, you know, maybe it's nothing. You know, maybe she just got ambushed and there really wasn't a lot of um, scratching and clawing or even any close contact. But when you've got a, a circumstantial evidence case and every little piece or mistake that, that SLED made, and, and then you have no explanation for credible two-shooter theory, and where's the blood, kind of like where's the beef, then the jury, every little piece of, of doubt that you can get in there about, well, who's, whose DNA was that? Really starts to rack up. Um, and again, we're in the context of overwhelming financial crimes, tied on in this case, they're, they're gonna hate Murdoch, they're gonna think he's a liar, they're gonna think he's a thief, is, but can they put aside that and also wonder if he is not just a killer, but the killer of his family, an annihilator of his own family, as Creighton Waters would say. People want to talk more about the jury going to the crime scene and kind of like the significance of that, what you all think will potentially come of that, how could that help move things along for them? I think it's, it's great for the jurors. <clears throat> And as, for this particular judge, it's a much more rare thing that he's doing than he does in his normal everyday trial practice. I'll just say that. I mean, we've made lots of motions to visit the crime scene and in, in front of this judge that have been shot down. So it's in 17 years of practicing law, it has not once been granted. Right. So the fact that he's doing it, though, I mean, you can see Creighton Waters did not want this to happen. He would rather, because what it does is allows, you know, the jury to get a realistic view. They've seen pictures, but they get to see how close potentially Paul and Maggie's bodies were to each other. And go, oh, look, there's that pellet that Sled never uh, collected that the defense told me about. Oh, my gosh, I guarantee you. 
they're going to be going and looking up at that door frame. And they're going to think back to this last defense expert when they do that. So, you know, the state doesn't like this at all. They're going to, they objected pretty strenuously to it. So, but it's, it's good for the defense. You know, the jurors are probably going to, again, not be allowed to discuss the case, not be allowed to take notes or draw pictures, but it will give them a visual aid that they can take back to that jury deliberation room. And it's just, uh, we always want it. You know, on a, on a major case like this, with a complex crime scene, we always want jurors to be able to go back there and see it. And it's just rare that it actually gets granted. So good job, Judge Newman, and you know, we'll see what they do with it. Yeah. I think we can probably move on to the next one here. Right. So this was John Marvin Murdoch. Um, this would have been the brother of Alec. He was the final witness today, um, directed by Jim Griffin. And he was a good witness. So juxtaposed you know, to his brother, he was very credible. You know, you know, Luke and I may find some of the emotional um, kind of resonance and, and visible emotions coming from Alex Murdoch to be fairly credible. But then he gets, you know, like Hannah said in one of our last episodes, you know, they're kind of the regurgitating every question back to the prosecutor, you know, kind of building himself up for what he's going to say. Doesn't always fly um, for your average, everyday consumer of facts. Like a juror is just, you know, think, why does he got to repeat himself before he answers himself? So, you know, John Marvin seemed very credible, very normal. Um, he was there for both a couple of different reasons. He was there to be an emotional crutch for Alex Murdoch, basically the relationship there, the family nature of the man, you know, how close he was to Paul. He was able to corroborate the Paul Paul nickname. He was also there to talk about how terrible of a killing would have been of Paul because he was the one that was really left to clean up the pieces, literal pieces, the next day of Paul. But then he was also there to assail SLED's investigation of this case in a major way. Um, so he did all the, the demeanor stuff. He did all the, Alec was distraught. He was a broken man. As, as compared to the phone call earlier, it was very routine. Right, right. road to Alameda. But he really assailed the integrity. And, you know, under constitutional law, and I referenced this case, Cows v. Whitley, anyone wants to Google Kyle's v. Whitley, you know, the defense is allowed to attack the integrity of the investigation as a real hallmark of, you know, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel and confrontation. Um, and he did that. He did it from kind of a objective opinion. I mean, he, for instance, he came the next day back to Moselle and he was just, you know, there with Buster and some of the other family and they're like have they found they're learning they have not found Maggie's phone yet and so here's this guy this everyday guy saying well Buster don't they have can't you like find your friends and you know John Marvin's you know said I don't really use my phone in any kind of fancy way I don't have a lot of apps or fancy things but Buster's like well yeah I've got my mom on my GPS find my friends and so well, give it to me and so he was able to quickly see that it was just her phone was right up the road. And so he, you know, this is the first time they really assailed SLED through this witness, John Marvin. He, he ran up 
to two of the sled agents and said, listen, her phone's up the road. Here, y'all, go get it. And they said, no, 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 we've got some technology coming down for that. And kind of dismissed him, we'll be able to do that. And so then he, you know, everyone from law enforcement was there, including, you know, that circuit solicitor, Duffy Stone, who's still the, you know, the head solicitor in that circuit, who had then had to conflict himself off the case, but he went up to Duffy Stone, who John Marvin knew and said, hey, listen, you know, you and your investigators here, is this important to you? Would you want to go get this phone? And, and Before it dies. Before it dies. And apparently Duffy Stone and his investigative team said, yeah. And they went up and drove up to its location just a short while up the way, and they identified it, they located it, and they put a marker on it. And then at that point, SLED was interested enough to come up and get it. You know, but it's never a good look, look in front of a jury to have the lead investigating agency, you know, dismiss an ordinary person who has access to evidence, apparently. Here's where, where everyone's looking for this. Let's go get this before the phone dies. And so that was the first time that I feel through this witness that SLED was, you know, credibly attacked for their lack of, and we've heard other witnesses talk about how SLED has mishandled evidence or didn't seem interested in various pieces of evidence, had to be shown evidence. Um, but this witness was kind of struck home there with Maggie's phone because we are we all know, the jury knows, that her phone was not handled in an appropriate way to then get the GPS data off of it. So not only are we hearing from John Marvin that they weren't interested in quickly finding her phone, but that when they got the phone and secured it, it was not secured in a proper way um, to allow for her data to be her GPS data to be extracted. And so that's been a big sticking point. Um, Luke, I know you were listening to this testimony. I got some more to talk about, but what, what else did you think about John Marvin? Well, again, he was credible. He's the, you know, the only non-lawyer, which might give him instant credibility with the jury. Well, he did say that he was the, he was the only Murdoch uh, that was not a lawyer, legally trained. And he was proud of it. He was proud of it. Um, he just, he answered earnestly. He didn't him and haw, but he, yeah, you can tell how much he loved his nephew Paul. He would choke up from talking about it. But he, he gave nice little anecdotes about the relationship between Alec and Maggie and talking about swaying together at a Darius Rucker concert to the point where his own wife was like, hey, why aren't you holding my hand? So you got some of that. And then again, just like we talked about, Brian, we talked about, you know, the things that Sled didn't do. He had the very normal conversation with his brother on the ride to Alameda where Sled would assert, law enforcement would say that he had just killed his family. And he, you know, that's, that's the thing I always looked about. When I looked at those phone records, if you were manufacturing a timeline, you're calling the people that would know the most in the world truly if there was something wrong with you. Um, and nobody from his son to law partners to his brother said anything other than this very routine, mundane conversation while I drove to his folks' house. But then he juxtaposes that with just total destruction and distraughtness in the aftermath um, that seemed genuine to him. And, and your own family would know whether something was genuine or not. Again, he clarified the I did them so bad versus they did them so bad comment. You know, he, he recognizes his own brother's voice. It's they did him so bad. And he referenced that he said that phrase repeatedly. Mm. And he, he just totally dismisses this blue G 
jacket, raincoat, and he says, look, they told, told me it was something of significance on property, but then once they said it came from that upstairs room, my grand, my father couldn't even go upstairs. He's like, it's a junk room. I don't recognize it. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing. And he, he started to have some mistrust. And there was an objection that ended up being sustained from the state, but he's like, yeah, they told me that the shirt they had was just absolutely covered in blood. And so you get this idea. We know that the lead agent admitted to lying about that, or he didn't want to say lying, but he wanted to say mis, mis, uh, misstating, let's just say, to the grand jury as he got them to get an indictment based partly on blood spatter analysis of Alec Murdoch's shirt when we know there was no blood on it whatsoever. And that Sled knew that. So it seems like he's saying kind of the same line to Alex's own brother, maybe, and again, they're right or wrong, they're allowed to trick, allowed to lie. Maybe he thought if he convinced, you know, his brother John that, his, that Alec was guilty of his homemade sin, that maybe John would be more helpful to law enforcement. But I don't know how he really could be more helpful because he's tracking down phones, he's offering to do whatever he can. He testified, look, if they had wanted to search Almeida, I would have opened it up for them. And he also talked about how he just went out to see his mom yesterday. He parked around back, just like Alex said he did. So, very credible witness. Allows the defense to push the theory of critiquing law enforcement, what they did not do, while also showing genuine, true emotion and, and, and basically being kind of a lie detector for his own brother about his, his own brother's true emotion. Yeah, and he also... Through this witness, was able to kind of get out. Well, who could have done this kind of moment? And so he was, you know, he was able to say that it wasn't only Alex Murdoch saying that the people that did this, that had this hate in their heart, would have been riled up by the boat accident case through rumors and everything else. I mean, he was able to basically say over the objection of the state that uh, some of the local law enforcement believed the same thing. I mean, he referenced Chief Alexander you know, kind of brought it to his attention right around after the killing that, yeah, this must have been about the boat accident case. And so, you know, John Conrad kind of gets up and in cross and says, well, regarding Chief Alexander, you're aware that your brother has loaned him money over the years. Uh, okay. I mean, it's, so, you know, it's, he was really credible. I mean, he was, he was emotionally raw at times. I mean, he gave a very, very graphic description of having to go the next day to the feed room and pick up the pieces of his nephew. And and he broke down at that point, you know, saying it was something that no, no father or mother should ever have to do for their child. And so he felt like he was the only one that could do this kind of task um, but it was so difficult and that he made a vow. I mean, this, this is kind of emotional connection that he made with the, the jury, I'm sure. He said that he made a vow when he was picking up Paul's pieces that he would find the killer. And then Jim Griffin pretty effectively said, you know, after that, and have, have you ever found the killer? And he said, no. So it was a pretty clever way of offering his opinion on, as, the, ultimate issue. on the ultimate issue in this case, which is, you know, that lay witnesses are not really allowed to do under the rules of evidence that his brother didn't do it. So that was, that was well done uh, by the defense there, but you can't, I mean, you can't really attack this guy. 
And again, very, very strong witnesses for the defense today. That's why we had Savannah Good and John Conrad examining them. I mean, this case is so so big at this point. It's, it's even, you know, the, the prosecutors that, you, you know, they want the, the seasoned prosecutors who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting don't want to be saddled in front of a jury with witnesses potentially they can't do anything with. That way that when they close... You know, they have credibility in the eyes of a jury. So they don't really care so much if Savannah Good can't touch these experts or if John Conrad can't do anything with John Marvin. But so, like, Metters and Creighton Waters didn't want any part of these witnesses today. Yeah. We've got a lot of questions. All right. Um, I've been trying to just write down rapid fire things coming in. First, I think what people want to know is this Netflix documentary that just came out while we're in the middle of this trial. What, can that even happen? What, like, what does that mean? I mean, they're even, they even shared things that happened like while court was going on. I'm sure it was designed to be released in the middle of the trial. <laughs> Netflix knows what they're doing. Maximum attention. Now, is there anything Judge Newman can do about it? No. All he can continue to do is instruct the jury to not do any research, don't search this on the news. I mean, he's, he's had to trust them with that every day and every night. No one has any idea whether they're going home and just reading the Post and Courier or, or watching this podcast right now. Nobody knows. It's totally up to them. They have to essentially self-report mm-hmm. if they didn't. Or if some of the juror caught wind, we have to rat them out. But Which we've had happen before. Jurors... Right? Jurors will rat out other jurors that they believe are not following the court's instruction. Now, if, um, you know, when Jim Griffin got scolded for retweeting a, a, a national news article publication about, you know, SLED not doing a great job or something like that, I mean, that is, he, that's within his own control. He should have hit that retweet button. And so that's a little different, but some, you know, major organization like Netflix happened to put out a documentary right now or a, a show. I haven't watched it by the way, but um, there's nothing anybody can do about it and I'm sure it's designed to get maximum attention and traction while the trial is still ongoing. Definitely. I think it was, last time I checked, it was like number two watched uh, <laughs> show. What Was our podcast it, number and, and one? Yes, yeah. and this podcast, this live recording came in at a solid number Brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Yes, today we're sponsored by <laughs> Dunkin'. Friday we were sponsored by Sierra Nevada. Yes. Um, okay, very interesting. Um, someone had the question, just to get your opinion, why not kill all three people? I guess this is just under the assumption that the assailants, if there were two, were most likely watching the whole situation. Alec was just so, he was there so close to the actual murders, you know. Why not just well, take them, take all three out? It's a good question. If we're Ozarking it, and if <laughs> we believe that Alec, you know, through his five hundred thousand dollars of payments to Eddie Smith, fifty grand a week for Oxycontin, which is just doesn't that math is not compute. Let's just say he's in over his head with a criminal element, and let's just say they think he's a whale and they want to extort him. If he's not, if he's in over his head and dead and lavish lifestyle or just whatever, can't keep up with their demands, 
You're not going to send a message to him by killing him because he's never going to get you more money. This is a guy that has a million dollar line of credit, can just email his banker and get non-collateral loans. He's got, as far as, far as any criminal would think, he's loaded. So they're not going to make the point that they're trying to make by killing him because th there goes your cash cow. Now, if you kill, or, if you kill his family, or right. you, make, you do make that point and say, do what we say. So either that's the Ozark theory, which would answer that question, or the other theory is he's actually not on the scene. He's gone back up to the house, and then as soon as Maggie and Paul put up the dogs, Bubba and, and Cash, then these assailants take action. You know, that kind of sneaky way they snuck up on the guy on Paul without him knowing per these experts, you know, with, you know, that kind of methodology, you know, they waited, they, they were in wait until it was appropriate for them to move. So either Ozark in it, or you believe that Alex Murdoch was long gone up at the house. And if he is at the house and, and let's say you're laying in wait and you see him, or even let's say you see his car leave, then you go take action. And oh my God, the fence is rested today, and we never heard about Bubba's GPS collar. Yeah, okay, so you're at, someone else is asking about the dogs, the GPS collar, so let's so go ahead and dive into if, that. If I'm, let's just say I'm a criminal defense lawyer, which I am, I mean, everything, every word that comes to my mouth in terms of a question matters. So if I'm like, hey, and what witness was it? It was, uh, was it Buster? But yeah, I think it was Buster that, that Jim Griffin got out very specifically that these dogs... Well, had, it was through Alex Murdoch, too. Okay. But repeatedly, the dogs had, had a collar, and it would actually GPS track, and so that way you could find your dog if he ran off, and it has data all in this collar, and like, oh my God, I'm waiting to see that. I think that's going to be a smoking gun of interestingness to show the location of the dog in relation to an assailant or when he was put up. Nothing. So as we, as we said on Friday's podcast, the assailant, you know, when the dogs are placed back in the kennel would be the, a very accurate timeline for when the attack occurred. Because no one is going to be shooting Paul or Maggie with uh, Bubba, this very strong lab out and about, because you're going to have to deal with the dog. Because the dog had a really special bond with Maggie. So, you know, that if that time that Bubba was placed in that kennel, that could do a lot with the timeline. I mean, right. it, it, and like you said Friday, let's say if Alec can credibly be at the Moselle house when that happens with the kennel and Bubba's placed in there, then, you know, that's an acquittal. Um, or alternatively, if, you know, Alec was the only one that could place Bubba in the kennel, then the state could be latching onto that theory. You know? So yeah, all we know is the dogs had fancy collars with GPS, and no one's got that data. But you've introduced a fact to let the jury know that that data exists or could be used, and then it's, it's never heard from. So if I'm the defense lawyer, I'm not going to even bring it up if, I, if it's not relevant. And the state hasn't used it. The defense doesn't have it, even though you think they'd be in position to have it because it's the, it's the family dog. I mean, that Bubba could be wearing that same GPS collar right now. <laughs> Wherever Bubba is, that collar manufacturer, I mean, I just don't understand why you bring it up and then it doesn't get introduced. Bubba's the next witness tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> They're going to bring him up. Um, it's, a, it's a stumper. Um, where 
to go next. Okay, let's talk about Maggie and maybe why she hasn't been brought up as much. You know, like this motive, perhaps, that there was divorce looming and that she was living, perhaps, in Edisto or why she wasn't wearing a wedding ring. Why, why do you guys think that stuff isn't being talked about as much? Well, it, it, was exclu- it was one of the only things that was excluded by Judge Newman. I mean, the, the state has to go through a couple thresholds before they can get things like that into evidence that aren't relevant. They're not probative of anything related to the double murders. And so the fact, I mean, they, they did try to get through one witness, some of the infidelity from over a decade ago, and Judge Newman shut that down. So they really didn't let the state even go into some of the loosey-goosey, bad character right. uh, evidence. Um, so even though, so, in our opinion, so much was let in by Judge Newman and then so much was opened up by Judge Griffin for Cross, um, they didn't let in this other smaller stuff. And, and if they had had more relevant, closer-in-time stuff, like if she were... Like I saw some uh, news article that every Wilkes was tweeting, so this is a lot. It was like Yahoo News, you know. She said, you know, he's up to something, you know, today, or you know, if there was anything like that that she had told her friends that day or that weekend, if she had actively been looking for a divorce lawyer, that would have come into evidence through the state. Like we, we would have heard that. So it just didn't exist. Is why we didn't hear it. I mean, we once had a murder case over a decade ago. Again, we have Judge Newman this same Judge Newman, where we had the victim telling three of her girlfriends the night of the, that she was killed that the, the person, other than our client, that this other person that we were focusing in on as a third-party guilt case, this guy's coming to kill me tonight, and here's why. Um, and even then, Judge Newman, out, out of the three witness statements we had, he found that only one was close enough in time to the killing to allow in in front of the jury. So we had three witnesses lined up. So Judge Newman, you know, normally keeps it really, really close to the nexus event. You can't just have a scatter shot, everything comes in. But in that case, three witnesses were, we had lined up to say that another person other than our client did the killing and he only let one get up and testify because they weren't as close to the nexus of the event as, as he felt was enough to get before the jury. So there's a lot of things that just can't come in front of the jury. In this case, it seems the exact opposite for a couple different reasons. But the, the ring in the car, I mean, her car, I mean, it's, she got a manny headache, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't seem, like if you're a conspiracy theorist or if you're obsessed with this case, like the world seems to be, of course, naturally, then yeah, you might want to think about that. What does it mean? She's mm-hmm. not wearing a ring, but... I think if they had any link to anything that would definitively show a problem in the, in the marriage that would cause him to want to kill her, that we would have heard from it. I mean, most domestic style, style killing cases that we have or we are aware of, there's tons of build-up, build up, text communications, events that transpire leading up to the murders where there's a domestic altercation. Neighbors and witnesses are seeing things. Uh, so we have an absence of any of that kind of domestic family annihilator type evidence. What we do have is a bunch of lies on financial crimes. And we have a suicide event at, you know, months after the killings that have, have been allowed in. 
due to Jim Griffin opening the door, um, or at least per Judge Newman's ruling. So those are huge, big matzo balls for the jury to consider that really make the de- should make the defense really concerned. But you know, they're not they're not getting into the other stuff at this point. And again, just to clarify, there is no like life insurance claims or anything. Like Buster's not inheriting anything. Alec Murdoch's not inheriting anything. Yeah, so we're just. I mean, Alex did not have in life insurance on Paul or Maggie. No motive there. No and financial then, gain. And then he testified that without, you know, I mean, he was not on the Moselle property, and he was only halfway on the Edisto property. So when she, when Maggie died, he had much more difficult time securing lines of credit for these loans. So he did have, at the time of the failed roadside shooting, he had $12 million of life insurance where it seemed like Buster would have inherited that and that was his goal to, because he was disgraced, he didn't want Buster to have to think about his legacy of fraud and theft and wanted to leave him some money. But that's, I don't know if that was purchased after the fact or, or he just had that for his heirs. But there's no life insurance that would impact his motive in this case. I mean, if he had been purchasing life insurance on Paul and Maggie in the, in the months building up to this, and then like a, as Luke has speculated one time, you know, you know, had enough of this boat accident case and these charges, let me just take Paul out and, and end it, uh, and Maggie, you know, whatever, too. I mean, that... That would have been something that the state would have been diving into. That would have been another motive line that would have been way more credible than the other crimes, wrongs, and financial malfeasance over the years that he's stealing from victims uh, and, and his law partners. So that would have made a whole lot more sense in terms of motive. The other thing I was, I've been thinking about, that if I was the defense and you're trying to push back and say, well, he did still have some, some ways to get money. He wasn't as hard up financially as the state would have you believe based on certain equity. I mean, his father was almost terminal, dying of multiple types of cancer. You'd think that we would have heard some exploration of like, all right, if you're Alex Murdoch and you, you hope he doesn't die, but you know it's probably imminent, it's probably soon, if not very soon. It turned out to be three days later. You'd expect that he would get some type of inheritance amongst the children, some type of financial gain that... If I'm the defense, I'm, I'm exploring that to say he's not as desperate financially as the state would have you believe. But we really didn't hear anything about that either. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, a huge part of the legacy of that area from great-granddad, grandfather, the dad. Yeah, we've heard nothing of any kind of financial payout in terms of inheritance from his from Randolph's passing. Right. So sure. that's interesting. Don't know why. <laughs> What was the status of Paul's trial? Pending. It was just pending. I mean, okay. the criminal, criminal case was, everything was tending. So Dick Carpulian and Jim Griffin were representing Paul mm-hmm. upon his kill, killing on the on a DUI death boat case. Yeah. So that was pending. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the lawyer team just kind of shifted over at Paul's death. Um, let's see. So people want you guys to maybe predict the verdict. What do you all think will happen at this at this point with everything that's been exposed where we're at today? If you had to guess what the jury is going to decide, 
I mean, you know, we always go back. We're probably the worst people for this because when we get dug into a case for our own clients on a very serious matter, we put trial blinders on. And so you really have to focus on the task at hand and sometimes analyzing a case like this, especially since we just had the same type of double murder case in front of Judge Newman, you know, it's hard to be objective about it. I, I think there's a, a ton of reasonable doubt in this case, a ton. Um, and I think if you're Jim Griffin, who's kind of playing the seed about, you know, he's, he's on, he's got other pen, all these other financial crimes you're hearing about with all these victims, he's been charged separately for those. And he's basically held his hand up and confessed. So that was his way of kind of spelling it out to the jury that he's not going to go home ever. And I, as a little mini mock jury, I, I went to the doctor's office today, just got back before this podcast. And so the nurse that took my blood pressure was chit-chatting with me. She wanted, she knows I'm a lawyer. She wanted to talk about it. And she was saying, oh, he's guilty, you know, fry him. And she was wanting to string him up based on his financial crimes. Just, I was just letting her talk. Um, she didn't really have much to say about the evidence of murder, but just he's a terrible guy and he needs to go down. And then the doctor, he came in, of course he wanted to talk to me because he knows I'm the world's best lawyer, and he was a little more cerebral and he was convinced that he's not going to be um, found guilty, and it's because they don't have any evidence of the murder. And so he was able to parse it out, and so you're going to have a lot of both those types, I would think, maybe on a jury. It, it's going to take, there's a reason why there's rules to prevent this kind of bad character, and it's the reason why the state likes to get other, these other crimes in if they can tie it to motive, is because it's very hard for a jury to ignore all that. You know, they're saying, hey, he looked, he's looking you in the eye and saying he's not a killer of his family, just like he looked all these clients in the eye as he stole their money. You can't believe that. Now, that's not motive evidence, that's bad character. Right, but the state has gotten into that under the guise of motive. So. I could see a hung jury. I could see a guilty if they've been, I mean, they're tired. They've been there over four weeks. They have just a massive amount of evidence to digest. And technically, if they're following the rules, they're not deliberating yet. They've just been taking all this in individually. Without notes. Not talking to each other. And now they're gonna be like, hey. And if, uh, if you've ever watched the movie 12 Angry Men, you know, the great Henry Fonda movie from the 50s, at the end of a very, you know, nasty murder trial, they all raise their hands and say, let's get out of here, what's your vote? And it's 11 to 1 with Henry Fonda going, well, wait up, guys, let's look at this. So I think we're having a lot of jur jurors ready to get out of there. And it's a question of do they do their job, do they deliberate? Can the defense truly give them the power to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to go, look, we know he's bad, we know he lied, that he will be held accountable for that. Have you been proven with proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he murdered his family based on this? Not because he stole money 10 years ago, not because he looked Tony Satterfield in the eye and stole his money, but because the state in our best system in the entire world has proven to you of double murder. Not just that he was down there, not just that, not just that you left that feeling that 
Well, who else could it be? No, that's not enough for the best. Legal. He didn't get out of the circle. Right. He didn't get himself out of that circle. But it's, it's very hard for a jury to do that when they've been overwhelmed. I could easily see a guilty and I'm, I'm 60% guilty, 40% hung jury. That's right now in this moment, that's what you get from me. <laughs> that's pretty fair. How different would your opinion be if we found the clothes that he was wearing in the first Snapchat video? Everyone wants to know where are those clothes? Well, what? why can't we find them? Well, and he, he gave his answer, but if we found them, well, I guess the next question would be what kind of evidence is on them? Well, if uh, I mean, according to I guess who who spoke today, if he was who shot Paul, they would be wrecked with right. Blood so and, if, I mean, if they found the blue shirt and khaki pants he was wearing that day and they had zero biological material on them. Well, I guess the inference is that's why we haven't found them is because they're so right. blood-soaked. But, you know, he's he's going to say I showered and they were right there and essentially Blanca washed them. <laughs> and then I never went back. I never spent another night. I packed my bags. I bounced around. And guess what? Sled never asked for it until they started until you know, my defense lawyers filed this motion. So he's got that to, to kind of rely upon and there is a pattern of things that SLED certainly could have done better. So we'll see, but the clothes, the clothes are somewhere with the GPS data on Bubba's call. <laughs> People find it really surprising that this property with so many expensive Cars, vehicles, guns, dogs, airplanes even, doesn't have any security cameras, no ring cameras, but they did have a neighbor that brought a drone the other day. So I got a, a thought on that, <clears throat> and we grew up in the country, not on however many acres this is, but we grew up on about 170 acres, and you know we didn't have any security, so to speak. We had a bunch of dogs. Well, they didn't have... Well, right, right, right. But a bunch of dogs, but we also had guinea birds. So, you know, there's some talk about these guinea birds, which are like country alarm system. And they do. They make a bunch of noise when anyone ever comes around. But you have to think about this as well. You know, why don't they, they got all this valuable equipment. They've got guns. They've got, you know, vehicles, things of, of value. Why don't they have any surveillance up? And I guess, you know, one could say, well, if you're that far removed in the country and you've got lots of dogs and animals and lots of firearms, a lot of people find security in that kind of setup. Um, some people don't, they need surveillance. So I do find it a little bit interesting that after the boat, I don't know how you float the theory that the boat accident, social media, rumor mill fervor, with all the threats, why you wouldn't just get a, a ring doorbell? Or why you wouldn't get a couple different cameras at the gates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, you got groundskeepers, you got housekeepers, you got cooks, you got cleaners. So yeah, I mean, it, I guess I would say, let's say this happened in a vacuum without the boat accident looming as a, as a concern. I would say, okay, they just live in the country and they do it old school. You got your guinea birds, you got your firearms, and you got your remote remote kind of setup. But after the threats and everything going on after the accident, I do find that curious, I must say. Um, and if I were the state, you know, I'd be maybe talking more about that. I don't, you know, I don't know who you'd get that through. 
There's no evidence of anything being removed, I'll just say that. It just never was put up. So I guess if you're the state, you'd say, well, yeah, because the only threat was with, from within. It was Alex Murdoch. It wasn't anyone else. It was only Alex Murdoch. True, 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 true. Great points. Um, I think we've almost hit everything just besides, you know, if they're, if it's not Alec, then who else did they look at as a suspect? I know that they talked to Anthony Cook, who was the boyfriend of Mallory Beach, and that was kind of quickly, he had an alibi, but who else would be like in this discussion, do you think? Well, they, the only thing I can tell they did was they at least checked the whereabouts of C.B. Rowe, the groundskeeper, because when he arrived or called in, he was just so bizarre and talking about being headhunted by the FBI to be a, a sniper or something like that. They're like, we better see where this guy was last night. Oh, you mean the guy with the DNA under Maggie's screen? Oh, that guy. Well, yeah. um, well it has the proposition set where he's closer than, than anybody else in this case. But, but he, he was a bizarre character. He was, and so, you know, they, they put him and his phone, like in Augusta, but they, you know, sled, as far as I can tell, law enforcement in a case like this always looks at the husband, the immediate family, and I typically find that unless there's something else glaring that you, as that person, whether the spouse who's remaining, particularly a man, you have to get yourself out of that circle of suspicion, so... I don't think they ever looked at anybody else at all. Um, I don't know that they were necessarily, they didn't have any leads, it wasn't a DNA hit, it wasn't like, now again, they're not, they're not doing everything they could to find that evidence, but you know, at the end of the day, law enforcement views stuff like this generally fairly simplistically. And they will look at you, and if they find that you lied, then they will never stop looking at you. Right. So that's, you know, whether he's guilty or not, once they discover you lied, it's a game on. Um, so that's why you don't talk to police. <laughs> the lesson that we've learned today, if anything, if you're pulled over, don't talk to the police. Lawyer up and shut it down. That's right. Hashtag. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for joining us live tonight. We will be back again tomorrow um, after court adjourns, and we look forward to taking more questions, diving more into the evidence, and the witnesses that speak tomorrow. Thank you all so much. All right. And think about a title, a name for this vlog, vodcast, podcast. <laughs> we need a new one. We need a new one. <laughs>